Hello and welcome to series three of the Catalyst podcast. My name is Ken Valady, partner and co-founder at Progressive. This latest series accompanies the new book that I've co-written with Eamon Carey called The Startup Lexicon, which is a guide to the words, phrases, jargon and terminology used in the startup and tech world. In each episode, Eamon and I will discuss two to three key words that are crucial to the understanding of the world of startups. Some of these words you may know, some you may not know, and maybe some, after listening to our discussion, you will see in a different light. All in all, though, our aim is to help demystify the everyday language of startups. And before I forget, details on where you can actually purchase a startup lexicon in both physical and digital format can be found in the episode notes for today's recording. Now on with the show. So, Eamon, how are you today? How are you on this Tuesday morning? I am pretty good. I'm pretty good. It's obviously not the same recording in slightly different rooms, but the joy of the internet is that it sounds like we are. Indeed. And you're traveling tomorrow, aren't you? Yeah, off to a conference to uh, TechShield in Riga. So looking forward to uh, to getting back over there. I, I was at Web Summit uh, at the back end of, of last year, but this is the kind of first first conference of 2022 and first time to catch up with uh, with a lot of friends in, in the Baltic, so I haven't seen for a while. So I'm excited to get over there. Less excited about the 3.30 a.m. alarm call, but you can't win them all. Yes, indeed. That can't be much fun, but I'm sure it'd be worth it when you get there. And it'd be great to go to a big event again. It's something that I think we've all been missing now for the last two years. Absolutely. And so into today's episode, Eamon, we're looking at section C to D of the lexicon book that we've pulled together. And within the book, we cover loads of words in this kind of window. We look at things like churn rate, clawback, convertible notes, cryptocurrency, DAP, DeFi, drive-by deal, to name but a few. But in today's episode, I thought it'd be good for you and I to go through cap table, common stock, double bottom line, and down round. And mm-hmm. I know some of these words, some people will have very clear ideas on, and, and maybe others will have some knowledge on, but maybe not the full knowledge. And as I mentioned before, hopefully from our discussion, some people might learn some stuff around each of these words as well. So if we kick off with the first one, cap table, and, and from my perspective, this was one of those words that kept coming up all the time. And it felt like a really official document that everything goes by. And I don't think I saw a cap table for a year. I'm not into investment like some people, but I don't think I ever saw one for a year and a half, even in any way, shape or form. But to me, my understanding of cap table is it gives vital information about ownership, the people who invested, the owners, the founders, and what ownership levels each of those has, and also details of how that's changed over many rounds and many funds. Is that the way you see it, Eamon? Yeah, yeah. Cap table is a you know, relatively complicated table or Excel sheet or Google sheet, however, however people choose to do it. And you have platforms like Carta and captable.io that allow companies to manage them nowadays. But to dial it back to what it really means, the, the cap table is short for capitalization table. And effectively, it's a breakdown of the value of the company and the equity within that company. And, and by equity, we typically mean kind of the shares and in some cases, kind of any outstanding warrants or convertible notes or, or anything like that. But basically, what the cap table does is it breaks down who owns what. So what tends to happen at the very start of a company's life, so let's say you know, you and I decide to start our Uber for dog walking company today, uh, and we decide to go in 50-50 on that, on the cap table, it would reflect that I own 
50% of the shares and that you own 50% of the shares. And then if we were to go and do an investment round in six months' time and raise a you know, million dollars from our friend Jane at a $5 million valuation, well, then she would own 20% of the shares in the company. And the cap table would be adjusted to show that you, know, you and I own 40% of the shares each and Jane owns 20% of the shares. And as you go through rounds of funding, and you will, we'll touch, as you mentioned, on common stock and down rounds over the, the course of the rest of this discussion, well, then things sometimes start to become more complicated because generally when you and I decide that we're going to start this business together, we start with the same, what they call class of shares. So we both have ordinary shares or common stock in the company. And if you go through multiple rounds of funding, you may get into what they call preferred classes of shares, which give you different rights as that company goes through its life cycle. So some preferred classes of shares, they those shareholders will get paid back first in the event that a company sells. Some preferred classes of shares have additional voting rights when it comes to major decisions around the company. So perhaps most famously, even though he doesn't own the overwhelming majority of stock in Facebook, uh, the class of shares that Mark Zuckerberg owns gives him unbelievable amounts of control over the future of that company, you know, potential successors, direction, decision, and, and much, much more. And those were provisions that were put in place by Zuckerberg and Sean Parker and others quite early on in that company's life. So the cap table really f- is something that founders and companies need to keep updated on an ongoing basis because every time they raise a a round of funding, whether it be a priced round, so directly for equity, or whether it be a convertible note or a safe or any of these other phrases that you'll be able to read about and learn about in the book, that should be reflected in the cap table so that there is an accurate guide to who owns what and what rights they have. And when investors are looking to invest in your company, that is one of the things that they will look to as, as kind of their Bible in terms of what's happened before previous rounds of funding you've taken on ownership that you know other investors or angels or previous employees might have, etc. So it's a very very valuable document. And obviously, if your company is mega successful and you someday go on to sell it or IPO the company, for very obvious reasons, having an accurate cap table allows everyone to get the fair distribution of capital at that uh, at that endpoint. So it's it's important to keep it up to date, even though I think most vendors find it a, a gigantic pain, but it's one of those things that's good to get right from quite early on. Because I've seen that the cap tables I've seen are a really varied mixture. Some are really detailed and really professional looking and other ones feel a little bit like they've been thrown together at the last moment. So I suppose the two questions I always have in my mind is, as you say, it's crucial that these are kept up to date and are accurate because they do reflect your company as much as the information that you're they're portraying. But who's also responsible for keeping those up to date? Is it the founder? Or is it a mixture of the founders and the investors? Because more people get involved as it goes on. It's kind of a mixture of three different groups. So the founders primarily, the investors probably third most important, and then the lawyers are the ones who normally kind of review the cap table, make sure that everything is in order. So when a company, for example, is going through its second or third or or, or fourth round of of funding, Mm. the lawyers who are acting for the investors in that round of funding will go back through all of the documents about the previous transactions and make sure that everything is reflected accurately in the cap table. And then along with the founders, make sure that there is a kind of agreed upon 
you know, full version of the cap table that reflects what's happening, what they call pre and post investment. But, you know, really, I think, and this is where these these platforms like Carta and CapTable and many, many others are useful because they have been designed to be very easy to onboard into if you're just a two-person company starting something up or you and 10 of your friends have decided to start a, a DAO and, and you want something to kind of reflect ownership. I think just being able to kind of systematically put this data into a place that has a permanent home is just a good habit to get into. And it'll help you save money on legal bills in the future, frankly, if you uh, if you get good at it. Mm. And with the, the cap tables, if you're now a company and you've gone through you know X amount of rounds and another investor's coming in and, and wants to potentially discuss you know investing in your company, is there kind of a, a rule of thumb for how much information you should transfer over to or should let an, a potential new investor see? Or do people generally say, here's the whole table? Is transparency the best option or is it best to be cautious, first of all, if there are new investors coming on board or potentially is interested? I would generally be cautious until it feels serious so you know i think most you know most companies most tech startups that raise from vcs you know those rounds are the information is relatively publicly available in places like pitchbook and crunchbase here in the uk and company's house you can get a a picture for who's invested in a um, in a company so if people want to find out they will but in many cases kind of cap tables have well in every case cap tables have everyone who invested from your you know your neighbor to your aunt to everyone else and i think at the point where you're getting serious about you know signing a term sheet or doing a deal with an investor, then they will naturally ask to see the full cap table. And at that point, if there are any skeletons in the closet, hopefully you've disclosed them already. And they look at it and go, okay, I'm not surprised. This looks good. Let's push the button and move forward with the investment. Interesting. And as you say, one of the other words that you mentioned earlier, you know, common stock is is a key can be, or in most cases, is, is a key part of that cap table. And when you come in and you want to invest or be part of a company, you know, be it preferred stock, common stock, that's decisions that have to be made and, dare I say, recorded accurately yep. from day one. Exactly. Exactly. And the conditions that go with each of them. Because you mentioned before that preferred stock, generally, from my knowledge, gets first dabs, if that's the right word, for any income that comes from an exit. And sometimes they don't have voting rights, but in cases, some cases they can. So there's it's best to look into the detail and make sure you get the deal you want. It surely get, it gets complicated very quickly because if you raise a Series A, you'll have one class of preference stocks. But then if you go and raise a Series B six months or a year later, well, actually, the investors coming in at that round might want additional protection or additional preferences. And so you end up in a situation with what they call a kind of preference stack. And again, this is where having, you know, particularly some of these online tools is very useful because you can put in numbers and say, hey, you know, with this preference stack in place, if we exit for $100 million, what does that mean for how much everyone is going to get paid out? And ultimately, what does that mean for the common stockholders, right? So common stock is a is an important one because generally founders own common stock in the business. Your team members, if they take a stock option in the business, those stock options will convert into ordinary or common stock. And common stock typically is the kind of the lowest class of of shares once you get through this this preference stack right so in in the event of an exit or an ipo or a liquidation common stockholders usually receive their payout based on the assets that are left after any creditors bondholders preferred stockholders are paid out so the common stock is important to think about because generally it reflects your 
shareholding in the company as a founder, and it most certainly affects the shareholding of your key team members and key staff. And, you know, for the most part, people who work in these big tech companies, you know, they have access to a lot of these spreadsheets and they can model what an exit might mean for their for their stock options. So it's valuable to keep that up to date and to make sure that common stockholders understand where they sit in that preference stack and that they're not, you know, mentally buying. You hear these horror stories, particularly with some of the kind of big, big names that uh, that went from 50 billion valuations to substantially lower valuations in the in the not too distant past where people were putting down payments on houses with, you know, money that turned out to be imaginary. And, and in many cases, in the case of down rounds, which we'll talk about in a minute, the common stockholders are the ones that lose out the most. So there you go. So like most of these words we cover, I would, I would dare to say that the devil was in the detail. Yeah. And with things like cap tables and preference, ordinary, common stocks, just look into what your rights are and understand, you know, to, for want of a better word, where you are in the, the chain of things and what order things go in and where you stand in that order. So that's cap table. And it's one of those, definitely one of those words that I think we could discuss in a whole episode on its yes. own. But for now, we leave it there. And there's, there's more information in the book itself. If we move to the, the next one, be interesting one to get a discussion on is double bottom line. And if I'm really honest, this is one that I double checked myself. I'd, I'd heard of it, but it wasn't. It's definitely become more familiar over the last five or six years. I, w- I would add, and double bottom line or DBL or two BL is where a company makes decisions. You could say a traditional company 10, 20 years ago made decisions on the bottom line. So they would say, well, if we do this, it's going to affect the bottom line. So we, we do or we don't do it. But the double bottom line is now where you could say companies have a conscience and they think, well, this decision also needs to be decided upon based on social impact and the greater good. So there are another layer of considerations that have to be taken into account to help a company make a decision. And I think from memory, I read about Ben and Jerry's, and I think it's referenced in the book that they made a reference that they were paying money to PR agencies to handle the reputation of the company. And they decided to cut that money to the PR agency and actually invest it or spend it on more on different projects themselves to actually for the greater good and to help the local community out. So actually put the money where their mouth is and do the put the money where they can see it make a huge benefit to the wider community itself. So it's a kind of another consideration that companies take into account when they make a business decision. That's one way of looking at it. What's your angle on the double bottom line, Eamon? I think double bottom line is something that was probably, if I'm being honest, probably sniffed at by some people in the investment community for many years, you know, that mm. where there was maybe a belief that investing in something that had an impact was, you know, akin to, to making a, a charitable donation. And I think that's changed rightly so over the the last couple of years i think as you mentioned you know companies like ben and jerry's companies like bombas and toms and and many others have kind of really come to the forefront as as businesses that can create great products generate very solid revenues and returns for their shareholders but also serve a a social purpose or do something that is for the the greater good. And you can see the rise in popularity with the growth in the number of companies becoming what they call a, a B Corp, right? Which is a, a certification that kind of businesses are 
not just businesses that are for profit, but they're also meeting standards of performance or accountability or, or transparency on everything from supply chain to labor practices and, and all points in, in between. You see lots of companies doing this in terms of buy one, give one. So for anyone who's ever worn a pair of Tom's shoes, you'll be aware that you buy your pair and then another pair is given to someone who's less well off. Bombas have a, have a very similar model and lots and lots of others do as well. And I think increasingly as we see, you know, large fund of funds, large endowments, uh, large investors and, and, and indeed individual entrepreneurs and buyers and, and end users and end customers become more concerned with kind of environmental, you know, social goals it's become much more important for companies to be able to talk about this you know, potential double bottom line. It doesn't necessarily have to be explicit in every business, but I think a lot of companies are now starting to think about the fact that the impact that they have can't just be measured in clicks or dollars or conversion rates or anything else, that in many cases, uh, these companies have uh, have a far greater impact on the society around them or society at large, and can have a far greater impact if it's measured, if it's tracked, and if it's reported accurately. So for me, it's been a, you know, a huge positive that this is something that people have started to take more seriously, because you know, all of these companies that I invest in and, and work with and, and that you know and talk to, you know, they have huge potential, not just as as businesses, but as kind of catalysts for, for change. And so being able to kind of think about that and track that is hugely important. And, and we see it borne out, as I say, through investors. But even now, when my portfolio companies are hiring, in many cases, they are being asked by the people that they're interviewing, like, what are the social goals you're solving for here? Like, yes, it's great that I'm going to get options that might be worth X amount of money in the future, but I don't want to join a company that's just you know, doing something that's morally wrong or something that I find repugnant in order to make money. I want to do something that, you know, gives me a good living, but also kind of adds some purpose to it. And I think that's been quite interesting to to watch as an evolution, not just from, a, you know, the investor side of things, but actually from the employee and from the customer side of things as well. And the interesting thing there, Eamon, just thinking back in the last episode, after each word we said, are these words a must-know or for specialists only, I would say cap table is a must know. You know, everyone must know what a cap table is. And I'd actually go for all the right reasons to say that double bottom line is the same as well, is a word that people must be aware of now. I don't think it's a specialist. It's something that I hear hmm. every day, probably. And, and I'm sure it's something that others do as well. So I think it is one of those phrases that increasingly, and I think it will become more prevalent. Right? I think where, where we're at today is, is, is a point in time. But if you're, you know, a fintech selling into a large bank or a large insurance company, you can bet your bottom dollar that if not now, then at some point in the not too distant future, you will be asked for an impact assessment in terms of what your business does and, and what it's kind of, you know, carbon footprint is or supply chain footprint or, you know, labor policies, et cetera, are. So I think it's something that people need to be kind of cognizant of and, uh, and aware of. Absolutely. And in my line of work with Progressive, the when we look at the briefs now that are coming through from large corporations, if there's one massive growth area, it's all around ESG. This is what's happening. And I would argue double bottom line will be an expected thing at very soon, rather than a kind of a, a nice to have. I, I think for the right reasons, it, it will feature a lot more and will be a kind of a mandatory discussion to a certain extent. So Rightly so. Yes, indeed. So we go on to the third and final word of the episode, which is one that kind of brings us a little bit back to the bridge round from the last one, because I think it's still got that negative connotations, but it's all about 
down round. So the last word is down round. And in the book, Raf Cruen, who heads up Disrupt Ventures, gave a, a really fascinating angle to down round because in, in itself, in its true self, a down round in layman's terms is where the a round of funding raised by a startup is actually lower than the valuation of the last round. So we call it a down round. And the general perception, rightly or wrongly, is that isn't a good sign because there's so much pressure for growth and companies to grow at speed and scale that to actually revaluate at a lower valuation is not always deemed as a good thing. And and Raf was saying in his piece that sometimes a down round can be a lifeline for an otherwise dying company. I and mean, it's a bit like bridge round. Sometimes you've got to take stock and think, hang on, hang on, you know, maybe the best thing for us here is to is to either look for a bridge round or in a case of down round, it's actually bite the bullet and kind of step back and reset and then look to grow in the next few rounds. But generally it's perceived as a negative. And, and I think from memory, Raf was saying, sometimes that's the pressure of the whole tech ecosystem, pushing people to get larger rounds and larger rounds. But What's your perception of down round? And it has, has it changed maybe over time? Or have you always been open-minded about it? I think the perception has always been somewhat negative, but it's interesting thinking about some of the companies that went through down rounds that are that are now you know very popular. So HelloFresh, which I'm sure many people listening to have purchased from or are subscribers to, uh, went through down rounds. SoundCloud, which if anyone is a musician or listens to music, you know, will be familiar with, they have gone through down rounds, you know, lots and lots of companies go through this, but maybe most famously, WeWork's $47 billion valuation, uh, you know, turned out to be not $47 billion very quickly uh, a couple of years ago. And as I mentioned earlier, had a very, you know, damaging impact on on the holders of common stock in that business who, who saw their imaginary kind of stock option portfolio wiped out overnight. So down rounds in general, are a sign that the business has not hit the numbers or hit the metrics that it was aiming for. And from that perspective can be viewed as a sign of failure. To the point that you've just made, one of the challenges is that sometimes companies take on lots and lots and lots of VC funding very quickly. They go through a process which we'll, we call premature scaling, which again, Connor Murphy has written an awful lot about in the book. And they get to a point where they have kind of growth that's not sustainable or churn that's too high or conversion that's too low or uh, ad rates that are too expensive. And they then have to go back to their investors or go back to, to other investors and say, we've made a mistake, you know, we've learned from it and we need to pivot the business and, and go in, in this direction. Generally, what happens at that point is investors will go, okay, I'm willing to put in, you know, 5 million, 10 million, whatever the number is. But I'm I'm going to need the valuation to be a lot lower than what you previously you know raised at, and obviously what that does is dilute everyone pretty substantially because many investors will have an anti-dilution clause so that protects them from these down rounds, and so normally what it ends up meaning is the ordinary or common shareholders are the ones that end up getting massively diluted, uh, and so it has a big impact on on founders ownership in in businesses and and can have a very big impact on the team's ownership of a company as well but it can also be the catalyst for for something new so you know one of the most famous examples is um you know the folks from Foursquare who were great I was a huge fan of their business where you would you know check into locations and earn badges and points and become the mayor of that location etc and it was a kind of consumer social product you know never maybe got the 
certainly the advertising traction wasn't bad in the US, but it wasn't monetized outside the US. And the numbers and the usage was good, but maybe not as great as, you know, the kind of Facebooks and, and Twitters and, and Reddits and others of, of this world. And they ended up having to do a, a bit of a down end and, and pivoted the business into effectively now a data business that powers a lot of other products and is now an incredibly profitable business that that will likely go public at some point in the in the not too distant future but they needed to go through a down round they needed to go through the the pain of that to kind of come back so it can be it can be kind of a second chance for a company it's a little bit like in the private equity world what they call a turnaround but in general i think people still view down rounds as a sign of a negative kind of black mark in the copybook against the the company or their predictions or their ability to achieve the things that they said they could achieve. And in some cases, that's right. And in others, you know, it's actually just that the market takes a little bit longer to buy into the idea. And sometimes too much pressure comes on companies to raise money too quickly. And I think really, actually, sometimes a more measured approach would uh, would not be a bad thing. And I would imagine, just like when we spoke about Bridge Round in the last episode, this is can be quite a, a scary time for a company. And, and dare I say, you know, a bit of honesty is needed to actually assess where one is and to kind of put your foot on the brake and have a very honest and open discussion with your investors as to where you see things going rather than where you, you, you feel you should be going or are expected to be going by people, you know, involved in your business actually kind of be very brave in a way and say, look, I'm not too sure. I just wonder how many companies in the past could have done with a down round and didn't and maybe never ever got to where they wanted to and maybe if they'd have been slightly more should we say just courageous in a way another word maybe to throw out there but and said look i think things aren't quite right let's be more pragmatic maybe that's the longer term the better decision to make but i can understand how that's a difficult one to make yeah it's a balancing act i think one of the big challenges for founders is that they realize they're getting into this position and then they go back to their investors and say hey we're in this position you know we need to do a down round or we need to kind of think about you know doing what they call a recap where you know they kind of start to reset the the cap table a little bit and their investors go but we're not interested in some cases you find investors that'll go hey look we're you know we're not going to put good money after bad or you know we want to focus on new investments and and new deals generally for a down round you know companies will go back to existing investors and so they have to have you know a lead investor or a group of people around the table that are going to be willing to support that and will buy into the idea that the company has you know learned sufficiently and will execute differently going forward but we are seeing more and more kind of external investors go actually we can look at these turnaround scenarios. We can get involved a little bit more in, in these companies. And so I would hope that as companies come to the realization that this is something they might have to do, there will increasingly be you know, some faces around the table or, or some people in the ecosystem that they can have this conversation with. And, and yes, you do a down round. And yes, you know, some of your shareholders are going, to get, are going to get wiped out. But I think owning a tiny amount of something you know, is better than the company being liquidated and, and owning, you know, a slightly larger amount of nothing. Yeah, no, I absolutely agreed. So that's it for, I say we'll stop there on down round. It's not another one of those words that we could go into greater, greater depth on. But again, I would say a must know, definitely must know for people out there. If you don't understand down round, you know. If you're a founder, hopefully you never have to understand what it means. But the likelihood is that it's at least going to rear its head once during your journey, even if it's a mega successful company. The trajectory is never as straight and up and to the right as people might make you believe after the fact. Very true. Well, 
that's it for now. That's it for this episode. And hopefully, you know, the words cap table, common stock, double bottom line and down round uh, are now more understood. And as said before, please let Eamon and I know if you have any thoughts on our interpretation of the words, our email addresses can be found in the show notes. So Eamon, another episode done. Really appreciate your time. I know you've got to get off and get ready for an early flight tomorrow. So thanks again for your time and, and look forward to discussing some more words in episode three. Looking forward to it. Cheers. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the series and please rate us and leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. And as mentioned at the start, if you want to explore further 200 plus startup words and phrases, details of where you can buy the startup lexicon book can be found in the notes this episode. Thanks again and have a great day.